Hey everyone, welcome to The Start. I'm your host, Patrick Johnson, and this week we're with designer Keenan Cummings. I first met Keenan um, at a coffee shop. I forget how I came about who he was. It was probably the internet. Um, and I reached out to him. I was like, hey man, do you mind if we chat like over coffee and stuff? And this was around the time of my often talked about transition from into development and just the design development industry altogether. Uh, we shot the shit for an hour at a place called Think Coffee. It's on like Bowery and something. It's basically like on the border of like Soho and uh, the Lower East Side. So we were, we were over there and we had a really good talk. He uh, randomly gave me a wa- a Wander shirt, which at the time was a startup. It um, transitioned into Days, which was then acquired by Yahoo. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've known Keenan since then and we exchanged pleasantries on the internet via Twitter and stuff. And last year at Brooklyn Beta, I was standing outside of Brooklyn Beta and Keenan Cummings is coming out of the Navy Yard where it was being held. And I turned to my girlfriend and I was like, hey, it's Keenan Cummings. I met with him a while back. I don't know if you remember. She was like, oh, yeah. Um, and he was on his phone. Doing, she was like, why don't you say hey? I was like, no, he's on his phone. I was like, he's probably doing something. Just, you know, leave him be. And then he, you know, a few seconds later, he looked up. He's like, oh my God, Patrick? And I'm like, yeah, what's up, man? Um, I was actually surprised that he remembered who I was. We had only met once. We talked very sporadically on Twitter. So it wasn't like we went out and got beers and you know played softball together or anything. Um, so it was nice to talk with him again. Uh, since then, we've kept in touch. Uh, a little bit more than just your random Twitter, like LOLs and that kind of stuff and GIFs. And from that, I was like, you know, it'd be really cool to have Keenan on the show. I've always admired his work. His really strong um, branding work and really strong identity work in general. He's done the Designer Debate Club, which I've been to once or twice. And it's just, it's a really fun event. But the one thing that, that drew me to it the first time was the Fist logo that he's that he's created for it. But, so we had him on the show this episode. It was a really good time. You can't tell from Keenan's really calm demeanor, but He's definitely risked a lot. He's, you know, he's had really good jobs. Uh, He worked at, uh, I believe, VSA, and he helped rebrand the Chicago Cubs, which everyone knows who the Chicago Cubs is. And I would imagine that for some people, that's like a dream project, right? To help rebrand one of the nation's most iconic sports logos. But for him, it just sort of wasn't enough. Um, he went out on his own and that's when he started taking all the risks. He started his own company, um, which was Wander. He then sold that company to Yahoo. From there, he left Yahoo and he left a lot of money on the table uh, to go just sort of be happy and, and, and follow his gut instinct in, in terms of his work and fulfillment in life. Along the way, he, him and his wife had two children. Um, they moved from Brooklyn to San Francisco, where he now lives. So needless to say, Keenan did a lot of things uh, since I spoke to him maybe two or three years ago at Think Coffee. But it's it's all for the best. You know, it, it's interesting because he's got a, a varied upbringing. He's got a, a, a religious background, um, which some of our guests do, some of our guests don't. He was into the whole like punk skateboarding sort of scene growing up, which some of our guests were also in, into in the past. And 
you know, it's sort of interesting because if you look at his work, after you listen to the episode and then go look at his work and you can sort of see some of the influences, some of those like like rock, early skating, early life influences. And by that, I mean just some of it's very strong. Um, it very much carries its own identity. And it's very clear that that's not so much a style of Keenan's, but a source of inspiration. Um, yeah, I think that's all I got <laughs> for in terms of intro. So before you get to the episode of the start with Keenan, just a quick reminder, wanted to say thank you first for listening and joining me this episode and maybe every week if you're already a subscriber. If you're not a subscriber, definitely hit subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. If you've got a little extra time, you can give us a star rating, one, two, three, four, five. Hopefully it's closer to five than to one. And if you've got a little extra time on your hands, maybe you can give us a review on iTunes or, again, your player of choice. Um, that helps us out a lot, and we uh, really appreciate it. So without further ado, this is our episode of The Start with Keenan Cummings. Okay, cool. Um, so do I just talk about whatever I want to talk about? Is that the idea? Yeah, well, you know, the, yeah, I guess like the, the premise for me, the, the, the way that I sort of started the show or the way that the idea came about is when I switched into development, I was like, I don't know how to fucking get a job in development. And that's mainly because when I worked in marketing, I got a job through friends. Right. right? And that's usually like the, not the easiest way, but it's definitely a way that has a lot of uh, results. And I was like, I know some people, but like, I also don't know the first thing about like my friends who are developers. So I was like, why don't I just ask them how they got into development, which always ends up being how they also got their job. Um, so that's sort of like the premise of the show. So yeah, we can, you can start wherever you want. We can talk about as much as you want or as little as you want. We can spend the whole time talking about video games. Okay. <laughs> All right. Cool. Uh, well, I guess the, the quick answer is I, I always kind of joked that my entry into graphic design was a bit of a, an accident because I had before, I guess when I was coming out of high school, I started like silk screening shirts with some friends. Okay. And I would do a lot of this kind of stuff. Like we would make stickers uh, and print it out on like Avery sticker sheets and cut them out and put them all over the school. And it was nothing that I ever considered could be a job. Yeah. Um, how'd you guys, wait, how'd you guys get into like silk screening and doing that kind of stuff? I only ask because it's not necessarily readily available to everyone. No, it's it's totally not. And like thinking back then, it was like, it was just this whole, I, I think it was this idea of, I was, I was very much involved in like, like kind of punk rock and emo culture, um, skate culture. And there's always been this strong tie between those cultures and like branding. Um, oh, totally. Obviously for different ends, but it was really interesting to me thinking back on it, how like, like why do those cultures specifically have the strong tie to branding? My theory is that because they're both of them are really hard to succeed at. So to participate in the culture, you get a board, you draw on it, you cover it in stickers, you wear all the clothes. You may not, I was terrible at skating, 
but you kind of, you kind of participate in the vestiges of the culture because it's really hard to kind of be, you know, everyone can join the baseball team and and go play baseball, but like in skating, being part of skate culture, sometimes just meant hanging out at the skate park and wearing the clothes and having the hat and the stickers on your, on your deck. So it was a bit more because I skated a little bit too. Um, and I, I was okay. I could ollie really high, and that was like that's amazing. That but um, I feel like it was more of a, it was an identity too, you know, yeah, like totally. a, a personal identity. So like you could do whatever you want all day, go to baseball practice, come home, and you're just still Keenan and you're still Patrick. But to be like a proper skater, you had to like live, eat, and breathe that shit. Yeah, it's and it, and if you look at some of these other like hobby cultures, they're they're maybe a little more diffuse, and that's that's great. Like you have a lot of different kinds of people on the football team, on the baseball team, et cetera. Um, and when they're off the field, you know, they might, they might be like a nerd gamer or they might, you know, be a total jock and et cetera. Um, and I'm probably underselling cause there, there are like deep fan cultures and all those things, but yeah, for, yeah. for, for skating, it was so much, uh, a cult. Um, and I still identify like very strongly with, with the art that comes out of that scene. I think my favorite artist of all time is still Jeff McFetridge who like his art is very distinctly like skate culture art. Um, Mm -hmm. and I know he does, he does still skate and he's involved, but you know, it's not like his client lists are, are just like skate companies. He's, but you know, there's, there was that documentary called the beautiful losers that came out a few years ago. That was about the artists that formed around, around this culture in like the nineties, um, like Barry McGee and, and Margaret Kilgallen and Jeff McFetridge. And so I've always identified very strongly with it. So roundabout way to get to this idea that like my participation in those cultures was mm-hmm. making stickers. We created a, t- a t-shirt company that we called FCK. What did it stand for anything? No. So it wasn't an acronym. It was just, it was the vowels taken out of the word Fezic, which is, uh, the character Andre the Giant's character in Princess Bride. Um, <laughs> I don't know, you know, who knows why or how we came to that. Um, but we we named it after him. Um, and it was, yeah, it was all about just kind of like slapping uh, our imagery and, and our ideas onto things. And so, so where'd you where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. Like, okay, so it was a little. I asked that because if you grew up in like some town in Connecticut slapping stickers on shit probably isn't like right par for the course. Whereas like Southern California, it's probably a little bit more lax there. Like that's not uncommon. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, and I kind of dipped in and out of like so many different groups, but yeah, I think it was pretty common for everybody to, to be involved in one way or another in kind of, uh, some kind of deviant behavior. Um, that was more, I, I don't know. I, I feel like when I think of, Teenage deviants, you know, it's like drinking and drugs. But I think the range of teenage deviants where I grew up was was much broader. It was strangely enough, like a lot of teenage deviants was starting a band or making like weird art and stuff, uh, which was cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that's a. Uh, I think teenage deviants where I grew up, some of it was drugs for some people. Some of it was like chasing girls. Um, but for me and my friends, it was more just like fucking around at night like nothing too crazy but you know i don't know where i I grew up in like a town in central florida and one of the only things that was open 24 hours was like the walmart right so you know the kids would sort of go post up at walmart and like hang out and then they'd kick you out of the parking lot and then you'd go home 
Exactly. Yeah, we do the same thing. I had a friend who lived like a few blocks away from a 7-Eleven and that was the coolest thing in the world because we didn't have a car. You know, we couldn't get anywhere, but we could go to 7-Eleven at like two in the morning and get big gulps and a bunch of snacks and then go to the elementary school and climb on the roof. And, you know, that was that was like our thing, you know? Yeah. You know, I have two kids now and I think if, if my kids like if that's the kind of deviance they're into, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage it. Like, that'd yeah. be amazing. Like, I hope that that's, that's what they do. Yeah. I, I could, I don't know. You know, you always, I don't have any children, but you know, your parents are always like, wait till you have kids. And I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, Oh my gosh, I don't know. I don't know if I want that to happen. Yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's a little frightening. I'm my oldest one is starting to, you know, exit, like kind of test the waters with seeing what he can get away with. How old is he? He's three. So this okay. age, at this age, it's like super cute. It's only charming. Yeah. And uh, I might like inappropriately for a parent, I might kind of encourage it sometimes. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's, he's good. He's a good kid. So I'm not, I'm not too worried. Does um, my, so my nephew, he is about three. And, and when you're in the car, he says one thing repeatedly and it's, what's that? What's that? What's that? <laughs> and he can see the same thing. Um, you know, it could be a stoplight. What's that? Go through the next one. Mommy, what's that? Right. And I could only imagine the patience you and my sister-in-law, my brother, and other parents around the world have with children. Yeah, it it, it does take some patience. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm mostly happy with it. I'm not afraid to say that, like, sometimes it just sucks. Sometimes yeah. it, sometimes they're just exhausting. And I, and I feel like um, sometimes the rhetoric around parenthood is so romanticized that it, it's it could be therapeutic to just be like man i kind of hate you right now like you know for me and my <laughs> wife to be like man this guy is such a punk like you know let's just go put him in his room sometimes putting him to bed is the best thing in the world um, oh, i could imagine uh yeah so anyways getting back to the story so yeah so we started this t-shirt company called uh fck we were starting to so th- i think like this is when I noticed like something unlocked for me in terms of like, I had never really been super passionate about anything. Mm-hmm. I was kind of, you know, I did well in school. I did well on tests, but I was generally just a lazy kid. Um, yeah. And I think this was something where like, I, I almost surprised myself how driven I was. I was working late nights, um, working. I was a kid. I, I wouldn't, I don't know if you can call it working, but I was, I was up late. I was drawing. Um, I was, researching how to silk screen and i remember going to the art store and, and reading through a pamphlet because this was it, i wouldn't say it's pre-internet but it wasn't in the days that like you can just google something and the first result was super useful um yeah there wasn't like an about.com reliable source so i was reading pamphlets figuring out how to silk screen and we just did this all on our own so we bought the screens i went i probably did this the least efficient way but we went to the frame store and found crappy frames for sale and just mm-hmm. use those uh, for the, and then we stapled our own screens, uh, you know, mixed the emulsion, yep, and, and then and applied it to the screen, and we burned them in my closet. We got a bulb and we burned them in my closet, and so oh wow, it was this magic moment when we did our first screen. It was it was like super low quality, um, and I still have some of these T-shirts, and they weren't great at all. But like, there was something there that I was super pumped about, and at some point along the way. Uh, the, the word graphic design kind of came into my consciousness. I don't know where that came from, but 
but I, I got this idea that this was something I could pursue as a job. So Mm -hmm. I didn't really have any way to turn that into, to any kind of plan career or career path. I actually went, um, on a mission. I was a missionary for two years in Korea. So I left, uh, from, I left home like at 19, went to Korea for two years. Um, and I just remember that whole time, everyone would ask me what I was going to study when I got back and went to college. And I just started telling people graphic design. And after, after doing that for two years without really putting much thought into it, I think I kind of just convinced myself that that's what I was doing with my life. So I didn't really know what it was. Um, I thought graphic Why did you, sorry, why did you go to Korea? You just wanted to just like check it out? Yeah, no. So I, I went as a missionary for our church. Um, oh, cool. Okay. And so I was there like doing service and teaching people for a couple of years. And you really kind of put your whole life on hold. So I wasn't researching schools. I wasn't really mm-hmm. thinking much about college, but people would just ask me and I would just always tell them graphic design and, and it just stuck. So when I got home, I started to research it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to school. I'm going to study graphic design. What is graphic design? And then that was kind of the entry for me. So how did you stumble on the term if you didn't really understand what it like entailed? I still don't know. I still don't know like where that came from. I think my idea of graphic design was like, um, like CD, like album covers, uh, t-shirts, stickers, posters. It was all that stuff. And when I I looked at the curriculum, I went to Brigham Young University in Utah and there, I remember there's a poster class. So there was there's something recognizable in the curriculum, but then there's all this other stuff that kind of sounded boring. Yeah. Like I can't can't remember the names of the class, but there's like a, like a corporate identity class, you know, which is just a branding class, pretty straightforward. But once I got into it, I was, I just found like a lot of depth that was super interesting to me. Typography was interesting. um, Image making, all that stuff was super interesting. So I just, again, like I've, I've had these moments in my life where like, I've unlocked a work ethic that is not always present as, as yeah. like an inherently lazy person. And so if, if I could find something that inspires me to work till four in the morning, um, I've got to like, you know, dig into that. And I think that's always been a theme in my career is as soon as I am no longer motivated to work after work um, to do the side project, I know that I'm not doing the right thing. And I've had that happen in my career several times where I'm like, branding was the thing for me and suddenly it's not suddenly I'm, I'm like completely bored with it and disinterested and I'm not pushing myself and mm-hmm. I've got to find that next thing that keeps me up at night, keeps me, you know, keeps me taking on side projects, etc. So I have to ask this, why did you go to BYU? So that was kind of a default thing. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm Mormon um, okay. and BYU is the Mormon school but again, this, yes. I think this is a reflection of the of the lazy man in me. It was just like, oh, that's what you do, you know. Uh, a lot of my, a lot of my uh, adult, young adult life was kind of like just do what you do, kind of thing. And so, yeah, when there are those opportunities where I'm like, you know, something out of the ordinary or something kind of off of that that prescribed path that mm-hmm. that drives me, you know, I'm I have to chase those things. So I went to BOU not knowing at the time that they have an amazing graphic design program. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it. Cause you know, I spoke to someone else who did a graphic design. Well, they ended up with a, um, a bachelor's in fine arts because the graphic design program was like, 
lackluster. Like it was like a few classes. It was very, so it sounds like BYU is that, you know, in, in the design world slash design game for a little bit enough to have a pretty established and well-rounded like uh, curriculum. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, it's not an art school. So you do some art classes for your first two years of school, but you're, uh-huh. you're doing a lot of general education courses. I love that I came out of school with like some political philosophy courses under my belt, statistics, all that stuff. Um, my interests vary widely enough that like I actually enjoyed a lot of the classes I took there, but mm-hmm. it's really intensive for the the final two years. Um, and it and it, they only graduate about a dozen students every year, and they they do have a reputation for those students being coming out of school being very solid. It's not an experimental school. Um, yeah. It's it's not like a fine arts type design program. It's very practical, but you basically just stick to the fundamentals of like typography, very foundational stuff. And the students that come to that program are very solid and very like very work ready. They're ready to like go and do real work, which is yeah. awesome. And I'm glad I had that foundation. You know, it doesn't have there's not a lot in that program for like product design interaction and stuff, but I actually think that's totally okay. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you, you, you become sort of a, a craftsman in, in this particular skill. You learn the basics, you understand what your hammer and what your nail is. Yeah. And then once you know that, you can sort of just go out and make whatever you want. Yeah. And I think like the guy who runs the program, his name's Adrian. He, mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he's old school. He was, uh, he ran a firm in the seventies in New York city. They were doing annual reports, very successful, but he's very old school. He's, you know, he comes from the the era of like, you know, Paul Rand and, and those type guys, very like corporate type, methodic European style design. Um, and so I love the, the education I had coming out of that. I had to educate myself on a lot of the product side, interaction mm-hmm. side, but I felt like I had the leg up because the solid foundation that I had. So, yeah. Um, were you still doing a lot of side stuff in while you're in school? Yeah, so I I always like kind of got involved with a lot of side stuff. Um, that we did some like I did some like kind of art design art exhibits with some friends. Man, I've got some like some awesome memories. I had one friend where we did a, there was a, kind of an art exhibit that all the designers participated in, mm-hmm. um, and it was about the, like the symbolism, like and, and political significance of water. And we had a lot of different like views into like what that meant. But for the poster, we actually laser cut um, the typography. It was a very simple poster, but we la- laser cut the typography out of, of a really thick piece of like this foam board stuff and then mm-hmm. filled it with water and, and took it to the these giant freezers they had in the biology department and we froze it. And so these posters were like leaning out on the sidewalk um, and they just like slowly melt throughout the day. Like the Oh, it's so cool. It was really fun. So I got to do some of that kind of stuff. Um, but one habit I, I developed in school, I don't know uh, where this came from, but I just started like sending fan letters essentially over email mm-hmm. to studios I really liked. And usually I'd get like a really warm response like, hey, you know, cool, whatever. Um, thanks for the, the kind words. Um, but my first job out of school came out of one of those fan letters that I had sent to a studio, probably my favorite oh, wow. studio. and it turned into like some kind of freelance intern type work that I was doing remotely while I was in school. Um, and then eventually became my first job. What was the studio? 
it was a really small studio called Fwiss, um, and they're no longer around. But uh, at the time, it was uh, this guy, Chris Papsadero, and his business partner was Ben Parat, who a lot of people know from Supply um, yeah. and Look Work and several other things now. Um, but I was like, Chris and Ben's work was like the best work I had seen. It had like, it, had, it was really, really solid and clean, um, but had this sense of humor to it that I is something that like I love um, in all art and design. So uh, yeah, I just, I just reached out to them, started doing freelance and it, it went really well. And then after I came out of school, I, I went and worked with them for a little while and um, it was a long story, but yeah, it was an awesome, awesome experience. That's, that's really cool. How, so what year was this when you were in school? So I finished up in 2009. So okay. it's been a little while now, but yeah, 2009, um, and then I came out to New York right at the end, or I guess right at the beginning of 2009, mm-hmm. um, and worked with them for a year. And then Ben, well, Ben had left, so I was working with Chris. And then I, I jumped around quite a bit. I think the first four years of my career was just trying out different modes of being a graphic designer. So I worked in house at Johnson and Johnson, got a feel for that. It was good for a year, but ultimately wasn't my thing. I did the kind of the two-man partnership with Fwiss, um, enjoyed that, but was ready to move on. And then kind of the big pivotal moment for me was working at uh, a big branding agency called VSA. Yeah. VSA is, you know, it's in the class with not quite an inner brand. It kind of has some of that like corporate feel a little bit. They, they do a lot of work for like Harley, IBM, GE, et cetera. Um, but they're, they're probably 300 people. So they're, mm-hmm. they're definitely a bigger branding agency. They're not like the, a global power, like Interbrand. but the opportunity came up to redesign or to rebrand the Chicago Cubs. Uh, so they had a that team. That sounds work. like that could be really fun. Yeah. So like, and this is, this is really what, why, why this, this whole experience was so pivotal for me. Um, they had, I was working in the New York office, a ton mm-hmm. of really fun work. And they had this team doing the rebrand in Chicago and they, they called me up and I, I had done some illustration type work and they're like, Hey, we want to kind of do a redraw of the mascot. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a redraw in the sense of like refinement and cleanup. It was like, like a whole new iteration of what the Chicago cub bear uh, would look like. Yeah. So I took that on and the work that oh, came out of that big. was really awesome. I still have not really showed it public. I put it on my blog one time and, and got an email from their lawyer within like two hours. Um, oh, wow. Not, not because they're, they're malicious or anything, but because they had in their terms, in their contract terms with the Cubs, they, they can show anything publicly. So, you know, I, I had worked on this. I was really stoked. And by the time I got to the end of the project, I was proud of the work that I did, but I didn't enjoy the process at all. I'm like, mm-hmm. something, something is wrong. If I'm, if I'm working as a graphic designer and I have the opportunity to rebrand a baseball team, like, is it going to ever get much better than that? And I just couldn't see it. Like, you know, with a, yeah. with a client roster like IBM and, and GE, I couldn't see that kind of work coming in consistently. And even yeah. when it did come in, I didn't enjoy it that much. So, you know, I decided that branding, you know, and that kind of graphic design wasn't for me. And I was starting to become really interested in product um, and startups Ooh. Were you doing any of the product stuff or up to this point, was it just branding and identity work? It was really just like kind of branding, identity work, occasional interactive work, but very like 
um, agency style interactive work, you know, where it's, it's, it's decent. You're building a site. It's, it's pretty good. Um, but you know, your, your type is too small and your, your interactions are weird. Um, it looks good static, but it doesn't like interact and flow well, you know, that kind of stuff. Was this by choice or just, um, by nature of the business? I think it's, I think it's just like, it's the nature of the business. They're like, they're just not specialists, you know, the branding industry just doesn't specialize in that. And it's, it really is its own discipline. I think there are some, I think more and more agencies are getting better at that, but four years ago, um, it just wasn't their forte. Yeah. Well, it probably helps that people use, like people use a device more than they use their computer. Yeah. So the, the premise of a website is more become an online platform for company A, B, C, one, two, three, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah, we did some iPad work, um, some really cool things. I did some like really fun interactive illustrations and it wasn't that it was bad, but I think the depth of, of thinking that goes into designing a product that you, you you know, millions of people need to use and that like that acts as a platform and, and needs to be like scalable and flexible. That was really interesting to me. So at that point I had considered, I remember this distinctly because it was, you know, we didn't have a lot of money to begin with and we were living in New York and things were pretty tight and you and your wife. Yeah. Yeah. So we were there. And, and she, at this point, she was not working anymore. She did, she was taking time off and I was considering like essentially starting over. So I was starting over like whole new career or starting over a different aspect of graphic design. Yeah. Well, I considered product design to be new enough that like, I felt gotcha. like I'd have to jump back in at the intern level or like junior level to kind of earn my stripes. How far were you in your career at this point? This was, this was about three and a half years in. Okay. So not, not too long to where you're really losing time. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, you know, if it's what I wanted to do, I, it was worth, you know, I, I figured it was worth um, the sacrifice to go yeah. for it. So I started to interview with startups in New York and I didn't have a lot of experience. The cool thing about startups in a lot of, a lot of ways, like you don't necessarily have to earn your stripes. You don't have to put in the time. Um, if you're willing to work and you, and you've got the skills uh, you can, you can jump ahead pretty quickly. So I got introduced um, through a friend to, to who this guy who eventually became my co-founder and he was looking for a designer and a potential partner um, Mm -hmm. told me what he was going to be working on. He hadn't started it yet. And I just decided to go for it. And rather than, you know, learning how things work by joining another startup, um, which I had gotten rejected by several startups in the interview process. Yeah. I jumped in um, and became uh, this guy, Jeremy Fisher. We became co-founders. Um, he, we raised a little bit of money that kept us going mm-hmm. for a little bit of time. And we started working on Wander. Oh, okay. That's where Wander comes in. Yeah. So that's really cool. That's also sort of, I don't know. That's a little, that seems like it could be a little scary, not bad, scary, good, scary. Cause you're like, you come from an agency or like branding background and rather than going to be employee number, whatever, you just sort of j- jump right into it. Yeah. And I think, I think like what I'm happiest about how the way the first five years of my career shook out is I've, I've kind of pushed myself and my family to the limits. Mm-hmm. 
and that allows us to know that has allowed us to know how far we can go. Sure. Um, because I talk to a lot of people who are like, you know, how did, how did you do that? Weren't you worried about this and that? And maybe we were, but now I know that it can never get any worse than it has been in the past. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's, there's times that come up. It's like, Hey, I could take this risk because we've been here before, you know, barely making your rent is actually not that bad. Um, and this is definitely a privileged position to speak from, but being someone who has access to a well-paying job, even if that job is kind of a backup position. So you could imagine, you know, if I would always say this, like worst case scenario, I could get a job at Facebook. That was always my feeling. It's like, if you're, yeah. if you're a decent designer, Facebook will hire you and they pay pretty <laughs> I well. Mean, it's, yeah. Well, you know, it, it definitely sounds like you were in your career, regardless of what stage, at a point in which design was becoming substantially more relevant, not only in society, but in in um, industry across the world. So it's not like you were a print designer right. that only knew print. You were pretty, you had a strong foundation. You were pretty flexible. So the reality is, I guess, taking that risk wasn't the worst thing you could do. The worst thing you could do is go be bored at a desk job or, you know, at a, exactly. at a, you know, a nine to five kind of design job. Exactly. And like, you know, as, as much as I didn't want this, but it was like, and I, and I understand that not everyone even has this option, but we have, we have family that would take us in if we needed to, like our, the, the downside wasn't that bad. So it's like, let's, let's try it because the upside here could be like really, really good for us. And yeah. so, um, what, what actually ended up happening is as we were considering uh, leaving, as I was considering leaving VSA and doing the startup, I was winding down at VSA. I had kind of confirmed with my co-founder like a start date and said like, hey, I'm going to leave. Let's go do this. Um, I started doing a little work on the side. And I remember this. Like uh, freelance work or just getting a head start on Wander? On, this, on, the, on Wander. We were starting to ideate and do a little bit of sketching. And this is how naive I was at the time. I had just figured, hey, I'm going to leave this company and go to another company. So I didn't really ask myself the question of like, what do I do about equipment and an office? We didn't have an office space. I left my computer at VSA. And as soon as I left, I realized I had to buy a computer and we didn't have the money to buy it. Um, oh, so, so you didn't have a machine at all? No, yeah. I didn't even have a machine to work on and we didn't have... Uh, the budget to buy company equipment or anything. So a week before I left VSA, I got an email from Johnson and Johnson. I still had a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. And one of the creative directors there asked me if I could do a quick weekend illustration job. Yep. And this was the day after I realized I needed to buy a computer. <laughs> I'm like, this is amazing. So it's like, hey, can you send an estimate? So I literally went on Apple.com. I looked up the computer <laughs> and that was your all estimate. specs I wanted. Yeah. And it was like, okay, this is what I want. This is the money I need. And then I estimated them the cost of the computer. They approved it. I worked all weekend to get this work done. I remember it was like a Tuesday night that I finished all the work. They were happy with it. I sent them the files and I sent them an invoice. Mm -hmm. went to bed and then like four hours later my my wife woke up and she was in labor so this was like oh my gosh yeah it was like the last you know last possible chance that we were even going to be able to survive through all this and yeah you know, got the money everything worked out um we had our first son Cy. um he was born it took about uh 
five or six days off, um, mm-hmm. went and bought a computer, and then we were starting Wander. Um, and wow. I remember Jeremy coming over, uh, coast, you know, hanging out in the, we were in a tiny one bedroom apartment. So she was hanging out with the baby in the back room and we were up front working and we'd order pizza and we had a couple developers working with us and we'd just work out of our living room at our tiny Ikea table. Um, yeah, it was super scrappy. That's not, I mean, how did you guys manage to get developers on board at such a, a, a nascent stage? You know, a lot of credit to Jeremy for, for being an amazing salesman, but also I, you know, it was part, it was people who were involved part-time. Um, gotcha. Okay. So they were, they were just helping out, but there was definitely like an air of legitimacy that was pretty undeserved. <laughs> um, Jeremy had done some work before, but like we were working out of general assembly which was a co-working space. but Yep, I remember we, those days. Yeah, we were like sneaking in. And they knew we were there kind of, but we didn't have, we weren't paying a membership. You know? <laughs> how's you, wait, how'd you sneak in? They, they wouldn't check at the door. It was, it was kind of this thing like, hey, we know uh, you guys. Like, sure, come on in. They would bug us every like few weeks. Be like, hey, you guys should think about like getting a membership, et cetera. And we just ignore it because we didn't really have the money to do it. And, they were, <laughs> you know, it was a generous, we had a good relationship with them. So it was, it was kind of a, it looked the other way and yeah. they were generous about it. Um, and we did that for a few months. And I just remember telling myself, my wife and I would sit down and say like, okay, how long can we survive on what we call subsistence wages? We were both just taking enough money, Jeremy and I, uh, to get by, um, mm-hmm. which actually meant we were slowly going into more and more credit card debt. And we we're yep. like, okay, we could do this for five months. In reality, the idea was like, we, we're going to raise money. And once we raise money, we could bump our salaries up a little bit and be a little more comfortable. And so we're like, okay, we could do this for five more months. And then five months came, we're like, okay, we could do another month. And we kept pushing it back. And eventually we did raise the money and things got a, a little less hairy. But right up until the end, um, we were really just like running on fumes. And if the acquisition hadn't worked out. We would have probably be the Yahoo acquisition. Yeah. We would probably be living with my parents right now. Um, Really? It was was, that close. Yeah. It was, you know, it was a risk all the way up until the end. We went into debt over the, over the whole thing. But even then I felt like the amount of debt that we incurred through this process Mm -hmm. was significantly cheaper than a graduate degree and way more valuable. So that was, (laughs) I guess that's a fair way to balance it. Yeah, just like I, I considered it my, I considered it my kind of my graduate school experience. So, for clarification, and this is more for me, less for anything else. Yeah, you went, you were still in debt even after the acquisition. Yeah. So, so, well, yes, I know nothing about that world. So sorry yeah. if that is and a so the, question. The, the say the way it works is, um, there's there's like s- several different incentives that come along with acquisition. The first one is just like you're going to be working at a normal job at a normal company who could afford to actually pay you a market rate salary. Yeah. Um, so that was like the first like stage of relief. Um, and all, you know, I'm, I'm okay. Like being pretty upfront and, and open about this stuff, but then there's kind of a sign on bonus that's significant enough to like relieve some pressure, but it's not, not really any, it's not like we're going to go travel the world. It was just enough to be it's like, not LeBron James money. Yeah. It, it, it basically gave us the opportunity to pay down some debt we also moved into a new apartment because at the time of the acquisition, we had already had our second son and we were sleeping all in the same room in a one bedroom apartment. Oh so was that the one in uh, 
Prospect Heights? Yeah, so we were in, we were in Prospect Heights in a one-bedroom. Still have a lot of affection for that place. But we moved up to Clinton Hill um, and got a second bedroom so that we wouldn't have to sleep with, with in, the, in the room with the two boys anymore. But yeah, it was, it was enough to, to relieve some pressure, but not much more than that. All the other incentives um, that we had were, were tied to sticking around and vesting and all of our uh, stock options vesting um, with, with Yahoo. So gotcha. it was, it wasn't even, a, there was no like immediate relief. Yeah. I even ended up leaving a lot of that on the table because I left Yahoo early. Um, yeah. which was okay. Um, Airbnb was, was definitely the right move for me, but yeah, it was a, it was a weird experience. Um, but overall that what came out of that two years was amazing, invaluable experience. We kind of saw what kind of risk tolerance we have and probably now know that our risk tolerance is much higher um, than we probably would have guessed. And that's going to pay off for the rest of our lives because we'll always know that we could take a risk and be okay. Yeah, And that's a big one. So I guess two things. One is I still wear the Wander shirt you gave me. So when we, nice. I don't know if you remember this, you and I grabbed coffee, I like think coffee in like Soho and you and I just shot the shit for like an hour. I appreciate you hanging out with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I still get compliments on that thing. Yeah. It's super comfortable. I'm like, I've beat it to crap because I, I like the shirt. Um, the bear on it's wonderful. But it sounds like this whole thing was a roller coaster ride at any point where you like, I want to get off or had the thought. Oh, definitely. Definitely. There was, there was always doubts. Um, I think like in the thick of things, like as we we're going through Techstars, the energy and the momentum was just so overwhelming that like yeah you don't really think too much about it you're you're a little bit delusional you're a little bit optimistic um i think it was actually after we we switched over to like we weren't sure or like super confident in wander we liked what the product we had built but we had some concerns and we ended up coming with this i coming up with the idea for days which Mm -hmm. is still a product that i'm like super proud of and i think the energy of developing that was just so amazing. We worked on that for about five months from start until launch. It's what happens after launch when you're like, you have to account for the numbers and the slow growth and an app that by design was really built for intimacy and high engagement, but wasn't built for like inviting 300 of your yeah, friends. It wasn't, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't Snapchat status. Like it wasn't a gajillion people doing really random exactly. short burst things. Yeah, and so, um, like, that was hard. That was really hard. What was, and I'm asking this because I honestly don't have full knowledge of it, but correct me if I'm wrong, did Wander ever launch or did you guys switch to Days before that launch happened? So we never fully launched. We had a limited beta running for Wander. And again, like, it was a good product and we had, um, I guess for a lot of people would probably never really got to see it. I think the closest thing to it now is exposure. If you're familiar with exposure. Um, yes. That's very much like what we were doing. I guess the primary difference is like, it was a little more constrained. Like it was very kind of photo-esque or, or photo essay style, like storytelling, but specifically yeah. about places. So everything, everything you kind of uh, shared and wrote had to be tied to a place. It was, it was essentially oh, a place okay. blogging platform. And the idea where there was that if you get enough momentum on the platform, then then 
all of the content that surrounds a place kind of feeds into each other and really becomes this repository for more kind of visual and, and expressive storytelling about a place than you get on Foursquare or Yelp that's really utilitarian. So we were happy with it, but I mean, one of the fundamental limits that we saw with it, and, and Exposure probably sees this, but Exposure's goal is not to have 100 million users. They're really aiming, targeting like a very passionate kind of pro-user crowd. Um, so one of the, the struggles we saw with Wander is, is not a lot of people consider themselves adventurous or, or the explorer archetype. Um, yeah. It, it just didn't... It, it, it's a very hard market to build products for. And if you look at a lot of the products that do well there, they do, you know, they charge uh, from day one. Um, they're very much about like pro features and all that kind of stuff. You kind of have mm-hmm. your business model kind of has to be um, higher price, you know, fewer customers. Yeah. And, and it's, and a lot of those, like I have an exposure account. It's a free account. I never use it because one, I don't travel enough. And two, the photos that I take would never, reach the quality of some of the photographers that showcase their stuff on exposure. Right. Exactly. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's for a limited set of users. I think it's, it can be, it's alienating for a lot of people, but the people that do use it pay money to use it. And that's awesome for them. So when you guys switched the days, what was the, I guess, what was the thought? Like at what point were you like, okay, we're going to stop Wander. We're going to start working on something else. So we were getting very close to launching Wander and we really didn't plan on trying something else. It was, we, we started working um, on our mobile version of Wander and uh, you know, forever to Jeremy's credit, we could have easily ported over a lot of the stuff that we were doing uh, from the site um, into a mobile product, but he Mm -hmm. wanted to kind of like clear the slate and start from, scratch and say, Hey, if this could be anything we wanted it to be, what would it be? And so we, I remember distinctly that we prototyped three distinct ideas and some Mm -hmm. of them were closer to what we had for the web product. Some of them were much farther and we were looking for like a really interesting hook. Just like, what's that one thing that keeps you coming back? I remember prototyping this stuff because I was doing a limited amount of front end. I was, did these really janky, um, jQuery touch kind of prototypes to play with some of this stuff. It was really bad, but yeah. it wasn't, it was enough to, <laughs> to kind of get a feel for it. Yeah. Um, and so we started to do these prototypes and this constraint of, of like telling a story within 24 hours, there was something there that was like super interesting to us, like sharing one kind of bucket of confirm of, of content that was constrained by like all the photos you took in the last 24 hours and strung, string those together into a story like that was just a really interesting idea. And so we just pursued it. And after getting not too far down the road with it, just into like some wireframes and some, again, like really janky prototypes, we realized we were onto something super interesting. And so we just chased it. And I remember there was a point where we had to go to our investors and, and show them the vision and say, Hey, we're changing course. And we really believe in this. And they, you know, they, they backed us, but at the same time they were impatient. Um, Deservedly so, they wanted to see something in the world. So they put the pressure on us, and we we probably built one of the more complex apps between the front end and the back end, and and all the components of it in a very very short amount of time. <laughs> you know, wow. engineering. I, I mean, it definitely sounds like there's some 
flying by the seat of the pants thing that you sort of appreciate, at least in this, you know, in these last few years with Wander. Well, actually, with leaving SVA, going to Wander, and then turning into days. Yeah, and and even now, like at Airbnb, I I switched teams. Um, I was leading a different team in the product group, and I switched over to leading this foundations and mobile team where, and this is like, uh, it's a, it's very much kind of fly by the seat of the pants. And I think it stresses a lot of people out, but there's something about it that like really kind of gets me working at full capacity. And yeah. I've realized now that I just like the one thing I, I can't do is like slow down. Um, and that's not to say I'm a workaholic. I, you know, I definitely take my time, um, but if I can get my head into something and just like go hard on it for a while, I can, I can do a lot in a very short amount of time. Do you find yourself sometimes, how can I say this? I know for me, if I do something too quickly, I'll have mistakes. Yeah. So does that happen for you? Do you think you've sort of created some internal process that helps you uh, not omit anything? Yeah. I mean, it, for doing development, a lot of the work you do, like m- mistakes, break things um yeah Uh, that's fair i can i could obscure mistakes and breakages you know a little more and you know put the blame elsewhere and so i've got these kind of personal philosophies that might not uh might not be good for everyone and might not even be good for me but i sometimes i feel like i was talking to someone about this the other day um rather than having the best person in the world do come in and help me do the job. I'd rather do it myself and have it be 80% as good. Or I always felt this way at the agency. It's like, can I design a product as well as a 20 person team um, with a huge budget? Maybe not, but I could probably do 80% as good as they can. And that extra 20% that they're putting a bunch of money and time into users probably don't care about. And that's kind of one of the burdens I felt at the agency is like how slow we went, and how much money we invest in like these certain levels of like polish and depth that I don't, I even sometimes wondered if, if they were even paying off with the user, I'd rather just make the whole thing from start to finish on my own and have it be 80% as good, but happen twice as fast. Now, was that surely something out of speed or was that more of just the personal desire to build something, you know, start to finish? Uh, it, both. I definitely wanted like my, my, hand to be like present throughout the the entire product but also i i like working fast i really like making decisions um and being very decisive that's this is one of the like kind of schizophrenic aspects of being a founder where you're yeah. you're required to make a a decision with complete conviction and then you might get some data that was the wrong decision and then you have to act like you know ne- like you never believed in it and have conviction about an entirely new thing Mm-hmm. And it's it's almost disingenuous. It it's almost it almost requires you to kind of uh, be dishonest with yourself. But that's what that's what you're required to do as a founder. Just be like, this is the absolute right thing to do. Go you know go full bore, yeah. and then a week later, it'd be like have a whole new idea and a whole new approach and change course. And it's See, tough. I don't know that it would be necessarily dishonest. I think it's more so. It, I don't know. It's honest in a weird way, weird way, right? Because based on the example that you gave, let's say one week you're like, okay, we're going to do X. And then you find some data that says X was wrong and you've got to move to Z. Now you're like, all right, fuck it. I'm going to go do Z. Yeah. So it's like, it's, you know, there has to be some level of truth in yourself to be like, Hey, I made the wrong choice. Let's fix it right now. Yeah. 
Yeah, I really, really like working with very decisive people, very like passionate mm-hmm. people. I used to say I love people who hate things because people who hate things also uh, feel very strongly and passionately about the things that they care about. And I can't work with people. I, I, I can, but I have a hard time kind of connecting with people who are fence sitters. And that's that's maybe even a bad way to put it. Uh, fence sitting has a negative connotation. But people, um, I appreciate the skill of, of being diplomatic and, and such. But sometimes I just want people to be decisive and to be very strong, strong-willed. Yeah. And I'd rather... Have their own opinions. Yeah. And I love like, this is something that I developed my... Uh, Jeremy, my co-founder, was a college debate champion. Um, oh wow! A philosophy major, so everything was a debate, and I had to come with a clear rationale for every decision I made in my work, and we'd hash things out. And I've learned a a, a certain process in my work where I can I can basically take the gloves off and go go at an idea with somebody and disagree with them, and mm-hmm. leave with no hard feelings. That wasn't always the case. I remember some sore moments. Um, during the startup where it was tough or we weren't necessarily, uh, you know, you kind of go home with some sore feelings, but now I've, I've come to appreciate the the debate and the conflict that leads to better work. See, you know, that's, it's interesting to me because I, I probably don't do it in the best way. It sounds like your, your friend and co-founder Jeremy is probably very polished and gifted at telling someone they're wrong or that the idea isn't useful or just standing by his opinion. It, it's hard for a lot of people, right? It's like what ends up happening is I'm like, Keenan, no, that's wrong. What you may hear is Keenan, you are wrong. Right. When exactly. It might not be what I'm saying at all. Right. Um, and there's like this personal effect that happens to people. And it's, I've found, especially in professional environments, it's sometimes really difficult to navigate those waters. Yeah, it is. It is really hard. I, there's a certain like maturity that, that it requires. And I don't want to say like I have, I definitely, uh, sometimes I, I can kind of walk away upset a little bit, but I can, I can get, maybe I recover from it quicker than I used to. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I feel totally comfortable being that person or, or shutting someone down only because I'm way harder on myself than I ever am on anybody else. I ex- I might expect someone that I work with to put in extra effort, but that's only because I'm putting in, you know, yeah. ex- extra plus. Um, I might tell someone that I don't think that the, the direction they're pursuing is great or that they need a stronger rationale for the decision they make. But that's because for me, I'm, I'm at home writing, you know, a long document on like a very one specific decision to like check my own decision-making and check my own rationale. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fine line to walk and it's hard. You know, one thing that I've been questioning and struggling with recently is like the role of humility um, in your work and at, at which point, or how do you use it strategically to invite people's, to invite people into a process to be fully, to, to kind of fully embrace their own talent and to not try to, to one up people um, because everyone like, I love working on teams where regardless, even regardless of your discipline, even talking about working with product managers and engineers, like everyone can contribute at every level of the project. But at the same time, how do you not let it get in the way of like you doing your best work by like doubting yourself or, you know, or telling the world that you're, you're not as good when you know that you can do something well. Um, it's, it's really tough. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Cause I feel like there is like, 
there's part of a person that really wants to push them to make them go really, really far. But then there's also a part that sort of pulls them back. And what I'm referring to, and I'm going to use this as an example, and it's sheerly just an example for conversation's sake. Um, you really want to excel in your career, but you also want to go hang out with your kids. Right. Um, and you sort of have to make the decision. And sometimes you pick one, like, I guess it's, it, it, the whole time it's a balance and it's, I don't know, it, it's sometimes for me, I found it feels like I'm cheating myself in one department. Like there's nights where I'm working until 2 a.m. And even though I'm at my girlfriend's place, I, all I did was eat dinner with her and she's like in bed and I'm like, man, I feel like a jerk. Yeah. But it's like you sort of, it's a little bit of a give and a take. One thing I find interesting and I'm, I'm looking it up now. There is, I'm trying to figure out which philosopher talked about it, but it's the premise of a golden rule. Yeah. And it's, and it's not the golden rule of do unto others as you want to be done to you or whatever. Yeah. It's the golden rule of since I tuck in my shirt, everyone should tuck in their shirt. Right. Um, I forget what, it's like around the Machiavellian times or something. Um, do you think you adhere to that? Because based off of what you were saying, and I'm not accusing or making assumptions, but based on what you were saying about how you work and the expectations of work with your colleagues and that kind of stuff, do you think that you sort of employ that a little bit? Uh, maybe, but but I am also very aware that everyone's got their own like goals and interests and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I just want people like, I remember coming into like leading this mobile team. One of my goals was, I want everybody on this team to feel like they're doing the best work they've ever done in in their life. And that requires us to push ourselves. Now, when we say push ourselves, the first thing people think is like weekends and late nights. Yeah. Um, But I think, I think there's ways for everyone to push themselves that might not require that for me. Sometimes it is putting in more time. Um, But for other people, like one thing that I've noticed uh, that's a little bit symptomatic of Airbnb's design culture, which is amazing um, but we do tend to explore every possible option and we want everyone to feel great about everything. And that hasn't scaled with the growth of the team. So when the team is, is five to 10 people, we can get everyone on the same page. But now we have a team where we're 25 designers, product designers mm-hmm. and growing and not everyone's going to feel great about every decision. So for me, like helping to push my teammates right now on the team that I lead is helping us to feel more comfortable being decisive, helping people to feel comfortable being authoritative about their decisions, being very yep. articulate with them. But doing that, even when they're in the room with, you know, our head of experience design or the company's head of design and not being concerned about uh, somebody senior, um, you know, being able to collaborate with them and not always deferring, just being comfortable and confident. And so, I guess to answer your question, it's like, yeah, I do expect a lot out of people, but the way that they deliver on that, I think it is up to their style. And so I, I put a lot of work into talking to the people I work with and, and trying to discover like what's something that they want to be better at and what's a way that I could help them push themselves in a way that they want to be pushed. Mm-hmm. I don't feel the need to push anybody to, to be, to work more in my style in any way. How does this, uh, and I'm, I'm surely asking for a comical sense. Um, Cause it sounds like you and I are on the same page. Like when I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes if I have to do something or the decision needs to be made and a decision needs to be made in two or three days, um, I don't talk about it. I just think about it literally for three days straight. Right. Sort of run, run through every scenario in my head and I come to a decision. Um, for me, that type of thinking or those conversations 
sometimes don't go well with a girlfriend. So I'm wondering for you, knowing that that's your sort of mental state, at least with work, does that transition well in the home? Yeah, I think so. That's a, that's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, I think one thing that's been really interesting um, where kind of my, my current work situation is bleeding into my home life um, is being maybe, maybe the word is genuine, being more genuine and honest with uh, what makes me happy, what makes me do good work. And the mm-hmm. same thing at home. And the more I'm open about about that, the better. And I think like um, my wife and I are are realizing that the more we can be honest with each other and not try to accommodate each other all the time, which is a wonderful and kind thing to do, but also sometimes just be like super open about like what I need from you. Um, yeah. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm tr- I'm trying to. This goes back to the humility question. Is like. And this comes from a lot of people that I consider mentors or, or people that I kind of idolize for their work styles. Like one thing that really resonates with me is people who are completely genuine, um, who are not not trying to be anything other than than they are. And and so for me, I've been doing that with my work, and I think we've been really happy at home recently because I don't feel any need to like pretend or or to to behave any way other than like what I actually need, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, totally. It sounds like you're honest with yourself, which then means you're honest with your wife. Yeah. I think, I think like a very small, but, but, and very stupid example is a lot of times I will, this is, this is like, this is the kind of thing that I would used to think was super embarrassing. I know a lot of people watch TV while they work or like have TV in the background. I've always done that and I've always hidden it. And even recently, I'll watch Let's Plays or, or playthroughs for video games, which is like the most embarrassing thing you could do. Someone comes up <laughs> to you while you're working and you have a video game playing on, you know, on, on one of your monitors. Yeah. Um, but I got to this point. It's like I'm doing good work and there's something about this state that yeah. helps me. Um, I've got these just these certain habits where I'm, I'm just trying to notice them and be honest about them and embrace them and be like, what's going to help me work really well? Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten here yet, but like if I could, if I could work Monday and Tuesday and take Wednesday off and then come into the office on Saturday, I'd be so productive because when I have come into the office and it's empty on Saturday, I, I, I fly, I can, I can do so much work and I love doing that. And, you know, it's, it makes me wonder if I should just like, you know, if, if it's some a lifestyle decision that I should make between my coworkers and my family and just say, Hey, I'm going to take Wednesdays and Sundays off and I'm going to work every Saturday in the office. Like why would, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. I don't, you know, I I think that's a good idea because it's, you know, it's interesting how much we sort of tie societal norms to a lot of our principles or values. Like when I was in Dubai, you know, because of the religious holiday, their weekend is, uh, Sunday, Monday, or like, no, I think it's their weekends, Friday, Saturday. So for me, I was like, wait, what? That's totally wrong. And then I realized like, it doesn't actually matter what two days or three or four days you take off. It's just like, it's all the same stuff. Um, so that's, I don't know. It's pretty interesting. And I, I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense. It sounds like though, to some extent you sort of had to come to terms with it, not, not terms in a bad way, but you need to like sort of really come to truths with yourself. 
And that's good. Yeah. And, and not worry so much about like people, like for me, if I had come into Airbnb and, and, and made all these demands early on and say, this is how I have to work, et cetera, it might be hard, but I've done enough work and, and good enough work that I think people just trust, you know, people trust you. And if you can, if you could develop that trust, then like, why not just be open with people about what you need? I remember yeah. like one thing I've continually, you know, told the people I work with at Airbnb and, and especially the people that manage me is like, I, I ask, I have a habit of asking for a lot. And I'm not shy about it. I ask for a lot, but I don't ask for anything that I don't. My my feeling is like I'll return on your investment ten times over. Yeah. And so I, I'm not looking for like an, an easy ride or to you know to to get myself some you know some free perks or anything. But when I you know when I ask for something, it's because I I want to return on that investment. And I think about like at home with with my family, I need to do this more. But like you know, when my wife covers my back by watching the boys for a full weekend when I'm off working because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to do the best work I could do. Um, I'm trying to be, you know, have that same feeling. It's like, hey, this will pay off for us and I'm going to return. This is an investment that I'm asking you to make and I'm going to return on that investment 10 times over. And if we yeah. do this now, then do I see a place for me in five years where my boys you know, are getting home from school at three o'clock and I'm there with them because I only work until three every day. Yeah. I want to get there. I want to get, I want to get to that point where it's like our, our life is built around the things that we value, which is like our, our family and our time together. And I could accommodate that um, perfectly with my work situation. Cause I've earned, you know, I've earned it from the work that we're investing now. Yeah. No, that dude, that's, that, those are words to live by. That makes total sense. So we're about an hour in and there's a few questions that I want to ask because sure, I don't yeah. want to keep you for too much longer. With all the knowledge that you have now, what would you have told that uh, 19, 20 year old kid who was telling himself he was going to be a graphic designer without knowing what it was? Yeah. The one thing that I very distinctly remember, and this came out of a place of fear, was making the decision on Halloween night about two years ago to skip trick-or-treating with friends and family. My wife took the boys out. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess at this time it was just our one, our, our, our one boy was, was maybe one and a half. So we just had the one. She went out with uh, Silas and then some friends and their kids. And I decided to stay behind and work. And that stuck with me. I remember afterwards they all came over to the house um, to hang out afterwards. And I just, I just realized like what I, there was, that was so not worth it. Why did I yeah, skip that yeah. to do a little bit more work? Um, and it's not even a, an issue of being a workaholic or anything. For me, it, it was like that definitely came from a place of, of fear. It's like I just need to keep working. Um, for a while, I, I was building a kind of a following and a reputation with my blog. I had a, a Tumblr blog. I was blogging a ton. I remember kind of letting that go and feeling this sense of fear. It's like, oh, am I missing some kind of opportunity there? And maybe I did, but like, just, yeah, I, th- I think I've more and more recently have kind of let go of like that fear and just let myself change and accept that and be like, I don't, you know, I don't feel like blogging. It's not adding to me right now in the way that I want to kind of nourish myself. So I'm not going to do that. Yeah. No, that's fair. I, I think that's a good outlook on life. Uh, it helps you focus on what's important. The other question is, if you've got a... Let's say, all right, here's actually a perfect way to phrase it. You're doing a, a designer debate club 
and before or after, doesn't matter, a young a young budding designer comes to you and says, hey, Keenan, I really admire you and respect your work. I'm about to graduate. Like, do you have any advice for me? What would you tell them? I feel like one of the most valuable things for me has just been, and I've seen this consistently, be, be valuable for others and, and be a huge missed opportunity for people that, that, that don't do it, is just, just seek out mentors. Like, seek out people that you trust. Um, for me, mentorship has gone through like three stages. The, the, the first stage was pursuing, uh, pursuing ment- like pursuing mentors, um, from a pool of people that I respected for their work that I really loved. I thought they were like amazing talents. And what I realized mm-hmm. is mentors got to be closely aligned with your values beyond just, just work. So, um, I have mentors now that maybe don't share my lifestyle beliefs or anything, but there's something fundamental about their values um, and the things that, that they want out of life and out of their work that aligns with what I want. So that was the second stage was kind of leaving some of those, those that first stage of mentors behind and, and seeking out a second set of mentors that I could talk to about work, but can also talk to about my, my goals and kind of existential um, thoughts. Um, yeah. And then the third stage was, just letting those, those relationships be. Now I feel like I have a pool of like 12 to 15 people that I, I keep in touch with. I, I probably talk to each of each of them at least once a year, but it, yeah. I don't, I don't feel the need to like talk to them all the time, but I could reach out to and just say hi and get some thoughts and advice. And I, I just kind of keep in touch with, and, and I can go to different ones with different types of problems based on their background and, and expertise and kind of points of view. Um, that's been probably the most, one of the most valuable things in my career so far. Oh, it's, uh, you know, I've, I sort of did this thing a while back and the phrase that I used was like a passive mentor. And basically when I first got into development stuff, I wanted someone to keep me accountable, someone who is much more experienced in the world than I am. And I emailed somebody that I, you know, I respected their work. I think generally our values somewhat aligned. And I was like, Hey man, um, it's actually a, past guest on the show, Sam Sophus. I was like, Hey dude, I know you're incredibly busy. Can I just email you? And if you've got time respond. Mm-hmm. Um, and that actually worked out really, really well. Yeah. Obviously not the same as like a, a traditional mentor, but that's something to me that I found really helpful just to not be as fearful to yeah. have a little bit more faith in your work to also know that you've got someone to lean on a little bit. It's, it was really, really good. I haven't kept it up. Um, but it's sort of an idea that I wanted to build out a little bit more and I yeah. haven't yet, but it sounds like it's along the same lines. Definitely. And I think that's totally okay to have it be like super low engagement. I think sometimes like the idea that a mentor is, is super involved is, is hard for anybody to keep up, but even just having, I've definitely, that's been my approach with a few mentors where like, I know you don't have a lot of time. Do you mind if I just shoot you an email once in a while? And it's super inconsistent, but, but I feel like even just the awareness that these people have my back. And having my back might just mean that they respond to an email. That's that's enough. Like that's really powerful. Yeah, totally. If you uh, hear that beeping noise, I, my roommate's cooking something that's setting the fire alarm. Oh, um, nice. Or my apartment's burning down. But um, we have one. We have one question left. Cool. And it's it's the secret fun time question. So the premise of this is that it's nothing related to what we've talked about your career, life, anything like that. Um, it's a little bit more of a break and sort of weird. I've got a question for you, and I think this will be interesting knowing that you are a pretty decisive guy. You 
you have no choice. You're Napoleon. You get sent to a private deserted island. You're the only one there. You have to bring three things. It can be any anything. It just has to be three things. What are those three things? I could bring anything. Okay, so I'll skip the like. But it, but it has to be. It can only be three items. So okay, so there's three, three items. items. So it doesn't need. I don't need to like do the sappy like I'd bring my family type stuff. Let's assume no. that they're there with me or something like that. Oh no, they're not. You're stranded. Okay, you so they can't come. This is just me, yep. and it literally just has to be objects. Yeah, just objects. So let's assume that shelters sort of taken care of. Foods. I mean, there's an island. You can find food. Don't have to worry about that. Okay, shelter, food. Okay, I would. Uh, so, assuming there was some kind of power source, I would definitely bring some video games because I'm a nerd for video <laughs> games, and I've totally okay. embraced that. Um, can I bring anything like internet connected? Can I bring like Twitter or no. something? No. No. Nope, okay. You can't. So, so I bring some video games. I'd probably bring like definitely bring like. I love my Kindle. Like my Kindle is, is kind of an appendage, although I've been playing more video games than reading lately. But yeah. the intention is there. Um, and then I also get a ton of satisfaction out of uh, maybe primal uh, enjoyments. Mm-hmm. So like maybe like a really good stick to just hit stuff with. <laughs> I think it's okay. having, having, a, having a kid, you realize like how much of a good time we could have like going to the park, picking up a stick and just whacking tree trunks with a stick. So, I mean, there's probably tree trunks there, but let's just assume that uh, there isn't. So I just bring a great stick or something. Really <laughs> primal enjoyment there. I could just run that's around perfect. an island all day just like hitting stuff. Um, that's awesome, dude. Where can people get in touch with you and talk to you on the internet? Definitely uh, t- Twitter I'm very easy to find, and I'm definitely the guy. Um, I might regret saying this, but I'm definitely the guy. Like people will send me an email, and I'll I'll just respond with like a three page essay. Um, <laughs> so I'm I, I love I love talking to people. Um, people in San Francisco can come have lunch at Airbnb. It's free food, and we can hang out. Um, but I'm very easy to find. Tweet at me. I've been blogging a little bit more again on Tumblr. It's just uh, blog.keenancummings.com. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, Keenan, thanks for joining me on the show, dude. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me.